real know-it-all? Do you annoy your family by shouting the answers while watching Jeopardy? Do you drive people crazy when you start a sentence with, well, actually? Well, guess what? You can go fact yourself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Go Fact Yourself, the show where we quiz the smartest people we know and find out why they love what they love. I'm Helen Hong. And now, recording from our homes in Los Angeles, here's our moderator, J. Keith Van Stratton. Thanks so much. Hello, Helen Hong. Hello, J. Keith Van Stratton. Nice to see you. Now, in your intro, you just said that we are recording from our homes in Los Angeles, but you look it's, to it's be a in falsehood. a different place. It's a falsehood. Oh, my God, we lied. I lied. I straight we, up lied. <laughs> I we am, started a show about facts that has fact in the title with something that is not a fact. Totally incorrect. I am not currently in my home. In fact, uh, keen listeners may may notice that I'm even sounding a little different because I'm not in my home studio. My home is currently being demolished slash renovated, ah. and it's not a good time. <laughs> is this being demolished by your child? <laughs> So my home that I've owned for almost about two years, we always discovered when it rained that every single window leaks. Like literally oh. every, you know, and thankfully we live in Los Angeles, so rain is, is is seldom. But every time it did rain, it would rain into our house, basically, mm. through every single window. And so we were like, okay, there's something with the windows. So I hired a contractor. I signed a contract. It was a certain amount of money. They're going to replace every window. They pull out the first window and they go, yeah, you're whole side of your house is rotten. The whole side. <laughs> like, we cannot put new windows in. And he even showed me, like, he touched one of the wood, like, wood beams, and the wood beam yeah. just disintegrated in his hand. Oh, man. And I was like, no! This X amount of money is now five times the amount that I was quoted. Oh, Ellen. And it's going to take weeks and weeks, and we're in it in an Airbnb. It's just like my house is basically a demolition zone at the moment. And uh, how is Baby Hong adjusting to the new digs? Baby Hong loves it. He just loves that we're all together. It, to him, he finds it a new adventure that we're in this new house, and he's just happy that we're all together, and he can, you know, break stuff in a new location. <laughs> <laughs> he, he hasn't yet found out out that, that it's his college fund that is paying for everything. So, no. Well, I'm glad you're having uh, good spirits about it and glad everyone is safe and sound. Thank you. And uh, let's get to our show because today on Go Fact Yourself, two guests will compete to answer questions about facts they know, facts they might not know, and frankly, facts they should know. Plus, we'll meet actual experts on two very different topics. And finally, we'll declare one of our guests the winner of today's show. Let's get started and meet today's guest, Helen, who was up first. She is an actor and comedian whose new podcast, The Kid Is In School, is available Available now, it's Abby Crutchfield. Hello, Abby Crutchfield. Hi, Jakey. Hi, Helen. Thanks for having Hi, me. Hi, Abby. Our pleasure. Well, Abby, in addition to what Helen mentioned, people, of course, will know you from the shows that you hosted on Hulu and True TV. You've appeared on Full Frontal with Samantha Bee and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. You actually know Helen from your time in New York. Tell us how you two know each other. It was early stand-up days, yeah. So we we crossed paths a lot. Yeah. It's always fun to hook up with her on a, and watch her do her thing Yeah, and you hosted a really fun, long-running stand-up show in New York called The Living Room. Yes, it's still running, but I don't produce it anymore. But I did found it. So it's I want to say it's one of the longest running shows in Brooklyn, for sure. Yeah. And it was like always a great time. And people loved playing there. And, uh, you know, a lot of like famous comedians now came up there as well. So yeah, too true. 
Very cool. When I started this podcast, Helen and I did not know each other very well. You have a new podcast that you host with someone that you do know pretty well. Tell us about that. So I host a show called The Kid is in School with my husband, comedian Luke Thayer. And we have a daughter who is now in kindergarten. And we <laughs> didn't realize how hard it was to just hold a conversation until she was <laughs> finally in school. I would join him. Usually we would divide duties. If she was at home, I would take her to the playground. He would walk the dogs. Once she was in school, I would walk the dogs with him and it would just be so peaceful to just get to chat and we'd sound like high schoolers all over again. So <laughs> that's pretty much the vibe we're giving on the show. It's just we talk about anything and everything. It's always goofy and we giggle a lot. Oh, That's wonderful. And you worked with your husband before. Well, Luke and I founded The Living Room Show. He's appeared on You Can Do Better, which was a show I hosted for True TV. And what else have we We've collaborated in a lot of different ways. I, I would imagine the child. Uh, the, most recently on Making a Child, yeah. Yeah, the child, that was probably a key collaboration, yeah. That was our biggest project. It's still going on. I hope it doesn't get canceled, you know what I mean? <laughs> I saw a quote that you gave in an interview where you said that joke writing is my passion and Twitter is my Disneyland. How has it felt for you as, as Twitter has been changing? You've heard this metaphor already because the people I follow on Twitter are using it a ton. It's like the Titanic. It feels mm. like it's sinking. You feel like you can't do anything about it. And what that means to people who are heavily on Twitter and, and they're used to the feedback and engaging with a audience with their jokes is either the jokes aren't getting any engagement. So it's kind of like people are like, don't talk about that right now. We're focused on real stuff. Mm-hmm. Or your jokes are getting replied to by people who you're like, "How? who let you in here? <laughs> <laughs> it's been so volatile that I can't really predict what's going to happen. But I do know there was a reprieve the day that people started using Twitter Blue and spending $8 to buy fake accounts. I mean, and make them sound like they were really verified. Yeah. That felt like old Twitter all over again. <laughs> that was a beautiful reprieve from the stress that we all felt of like, this app may close and what do we do? We do We're going to go out with a bang, yeah. Last thing I want to ask you about, I saw in an interview that you had an autograph book that you would get autographs from comedians and uh, I imagine other celebrities. I was curious about what are some of the highlights of getting autographs and is that something that you still do? I wish that other celebrities rolled through Indianapolis. <laughs> it was a book I kept my first year of stand-up, so it was a composition notebook and I wanted tips. I wanted advice from them. So I did like having their signature, but I never planned to sell it on eBay. It was always about, can you throw in a little tip for me? I have it somewhere, I'm sure, because mm-hmm. I don't throw anything made of paper away. It's all just <laughs> tucked neatly in a beautiful box up in storage. What well, sounds like it really worked, though. The idea was to get inspiration and advice, and, and here you are now. It worked! Yay. Yeah, it's an autograph book, kids. Yes, and by the way, I didn't mean to imply that now you've made it because you're on our podcast. I meant with all of the other successes, but I will sign your autograph book if I do go through Indianapolis. You are welcome to. When I, find, when I unearth that book, I will <laughs> Abby, definitely sign it. Thank you, JK. Thank you, Abby. Thanks so much for being here, Abby Crutchfield. Helen, against whom will Abby be competing? He is an award-winning baseball researcher and writer for MLB.com who can be heard on the podcast Ballpark Dimensions. It's Mike Petriello. Hello, Mike. Hello, Jay Keith. Helen, Abby, how are you? Hi, Very Mike. well. Hey. We're so happy to have you here. In addition to MLB.com, people will know your work from Fangraphs, Baseball Perspectives, and ESPN. As we record this, uh, the World Series has recently ended. What did you make of this baseball season? I mean, I think we were all happy to have a baseball season. If you remember yeah, last if, winter, if there recall, was yeah. labor unpleasantness. And it was yeah. the day that that got resolved, they came to an agreement. My wife was like, hey, you seem a lot less miserable today than you've been for the last three months. And I'm like, that is 100% true. I'm so excited. And it was a super fun season. And the playoffs had a kind of a different format. 
And I really enjoyed that you got to the World Series and there was like a real black hat villain. Everybody mm-hmm. hates the Astros for reasons that I think most people know. But if not, they cheated in the World Series a couple years ago. And they're still really, <laughs> really good. And most of the players yeah. aren't even there anymore. But in addition to like the high level baseball, it was also like this morality play of can you root for this team because they're full of bad right. people? Up, up, up. It just is like an extra layer of entertainment. Your focus in baseball writing and research is on StatCast and statistical analysis. For listeners who don't know, can you briefly explain what is StatCast and what's sort of been the biggest change in understanding the game by using it? Yeah, absolutely. StatCast is a camera and radar tracking system. It's changed over the years and it tracks pretty much everything on a baseball field you can think of. Uh, a previous version of it called PitchFX started in 2008 and it was just, you know, the velocity of the ball, what kind of pitch was it? And then it was, well, how much did the ball spin and in what direction did it spin and who hit the ball the hardest and who runs the fastest now? And now there's like a newer version called Hawkeye that can actually track joints. Like it's a whole thing. It's really interesting. But what I can do is uh, kind of translate all that for the common fan. Like, hey, why is this interesting? Who's good at that? That's what I spend most of my time doing. Wait, when you say joints, like which joints on the body are being used to throw the ball? Well, like how far apart are your ankles, for example? Like what? where are your wrists when you take a swing? Like it's still the infancy of all this stuff. Whoa. But yes, that, that kind of joint, not the other kind of joint. That's a different tracking system entirely. <laughs> Sorry, Helen. <laughs> Darn. Now you've written, as we mentioned, for other outlets before you wrote for MLB. Does writing for MLB change your writings? It change maybe the things that you can or can't say or how you say them? Yeah, no, I definitely have fewer Simpsons jokes in my writing than I used to at <laughs> some independent places. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of I work for the man now, right? Mm -hmm. So like, there are certain things I shouldn't talk about. And partially, Mm -hmm. that's just because I work for one group and not the other group. And that's partially because, I mean, if you really want to game it out, in theory, this could end up in, you know, some labor lawyer's courtroom saying, well, an employee of Major League Baseball said this. And I'm like, I'm just a guy making jokes on Twitter. I'm I'm in a basement (laughs) in Brooklyn. Like, I'm not the guy who's in the room doing all this stuff. (laughs) Last thing I want to ask you about, you had some interaction with one of our previous guests and not the ones that we've had from Major League Baseball. You were featured with our previous guest, Jackson Galaxy, on an episode of My Cat from Hell. I'm dying to know what was that uh, episode like and how did it resolve? Uh, when you said previous guest, I thought you were going to say Jason Benetti or Meg Rowley, right. who are like right. friends of mine. You found the cat thing. Most of my friends don't even know about the cat thing. So when I lived in Manhattan and my wife and I were engaged but not yet married, we spent a couple months sleeping in separate bedrooms because we had two cats who absolutely hated each other, would not Aww. be in the same room. And he came and like they built stuff in our apartment and they, they it was actually okay and they, they got along and then we moved and they started hating each other again and then dot 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 one of them passed away the other one's still oh. here and she's super happy it worked out in the oh, end good. for her <laughs> and for yeah. us the perfect crime she is running hell that's the joke we make she's in hell she and she's hold- running she was holding a knife and you nobody talks about it <laughs> yeah did she pass under suspicious circumstances i think that's what we're getting at <laughs> Uh, That's great. I'm glad she's doing well. And we're so glad that you joined us. Mike Petriello, everybody. All right, Abby and Mike, we asked each of you to provide us with a few topics outside your field of work in which you feel you have some expertise. Abby, you said you know a lot about nail polish, curly hair care, and the TV show Murder, She Wrote. Whereas Mike, a little bit different, you said you know a lot about James Bond movies, the best rock records of 1996, and dead sports teams. Later on, we're going to ask each of you some in-depth trivia questions about one of those topics. But first, we're going to get your thoughts on something you might know nothing about. It's time to split some hairs with our What's the Difference round. We'll have one question for each of you, each worth up to two points. If either of you gives an incorrect answer, the other person has a chance to steal. 
Your topic today, strain. First up in strain is Abby. Abby, your question comes from a listener. Who is it, Helen? I will let them tell you themselves because we have a listener recording. Listeners, if you'd like to submit a suggestion for our What's the Difference round, go to gofactyourpod.com and click on Get Involved. All right, play it. Hi, Jay Keith, Helen, and guests. This is Dave Rubin from Asheville, North Carolina. My question for What's the Difference is, while both might put something under a lot of strain... In physics, what's the difference between force and pressure? Thanks, everyone. Love the show. Oh, thank you so much, Dave. All right, Abby, you heard our listener, Dave. What is the difference between force and pressure? Thank you, J. Keith and Dave. Excellent question. The difference (laughs) is force is when molecules are condensed in in, in, in smaller space, from not a catalyst, but pressure is that same condensedness from a catalyst. Even though I used a fake word like condensedness, I know a lot about this topic. Oh, no, I can tell from the confident way in which at least you began your answer. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right, we've got Abby's answer. We don't know yet if she's entirely correct. Mike, you can steal if there's anything you want to change or add to Abby's answer. I don't know how I can follow that because she absolutely sounds like she knows what she's talking about, where I 100% do not. But here's my uh, almost certainly incorrect guess. Uh, Force implies that the pressure or force is coming with a direction behind it, whereas pressure does not. All right. Well, this segment is breaking under the pressure or force. Let's go to Helen Hong at the judges table for the facts. Here are the facts. Force is a push or pull action on an object, and it's measured in units called newtons. Pressure is the amount of force over an area, and it's measured in units called pascals. A pascal is one newton per square meter. So, if I'm standing on the ground, I am exerting force on that ground, and I am also exerting pressure on the ground. But if I lift one leg so I'm standing on one foot, I'm still exerting the same force, but since that force is over a smaller area, the surface of one foot instead of two, the pressure has doubled. It sure has. That's right. And wearing stiletto shoes can actually exert more pressure on the ground than a bulldozer since the force is spread onto such a tiny surface area. And if I'm wearing those stilettos instead of Helen, that would cause even more pressure and more questions. Helen, how did our guests do? (laughs) You know, as confident as both of you were... Mm-hmm. Uh, you got nothing. You got yeah, nothing. Well, I'm terribly <laughs> sorry. sorry. I'm terribly sorry. sorry. Abby, well as earned. much as I was impressed by condensedness mm-hmm. and molecules, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> Abby is still laughing and smiling, and that may be the more important thing. No points there. I'm sorry. Up next in strain, though, is Mike. Mike, your question also comes from a listener. Who is it this time, Helen? It's from two listeners. Play it. Hi, everyone. We're Jonathan Feinberg and Sarah Abarbanel from Carlsbad, California. Our question for what's the difference is, while both are very useful in the kitchen for reducing strain on the cook, what's the difference between a colander and a strainer? Thanks so much. We love your show. Oh, thank you so much, Jonathan and Sarah. And by the way, Sarah, I'm sorry I got your location wrong last time we used one of your suggestions. You apparently are not in Australia. All right, Mike, you heard them. What is the difference between a colander and a strainer? That is a wonderful question, which I am not confident about. I should say that. Okay, a colander is basically a big bowl with little holes in it, and you can put any solid in it and run water through it and not have the solid go through. You use it for cleaning, let's say. Whereas straining is something you would use to uh, maybe convert a solid into smaller pieces. Into smaller pieces. All right, we've got Mike's answer. We don't know yet if he's entirely correct. Abby, anything you want to change or add? 
I would amend my statement to say that a colander and a strainer are the same thing, but strainer has smaller holes. Smaller holes. All right. Well, this segment isn't holding water. Let's go to Helen Hong at the judges' table for the facts. Here are the facts. A colander is a bowl-shaped utensil that is mostly solid, but has holes in it to allow liquid to pass through. Those holes are usually pretty big, offering moderate filtration. And sometimes those holes are only at the bottom, where you'll also often find a base. A strainer is a bowl-shaped utensil that is made of mesh. Those holes are everywhere and can provide a high level of filtration. Filtration that can be for solids, like for sifting flour. A strainer will sometimes have a base, but unlike most colanders, could have a handle or wings that let you attach it to a bowl or pot. Uh, That's right. Now, there are many types of strainers, including a cocktail strainer to strain ice or muddled herbs. And if you need a strainer but don't have one, you can try straining through a cheesecloth, a slotted spoon, or a coffee filter. Or if you drink enough cocktails, you won't care what's in there. Helen, how did our guest do? You know what? I'm feeling pretty generous. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think each of you got one point. All right, yeah, because, yeah, yeah, right. because Mike, you said big bowl with holes, which is essentially that's true for a colander. And then, uh, Abby, you said uh, the strainer has smaller holes, which is correct. So I'm going to give you each one point. Mm-hmm. One point. Holes Thanks. for everybody. <laughs> Helen, what is our score at the end of that round? At the end of that round, Abby Crutchfield has one point and Mike Petriello also has one point. But those scores are bound Woo-hoo. to change as we move on to questions about topics our guests have chosen for themselves. That's all up ahead when we come back on Go Fact Yourself. Hey, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin. Listen, you like podcasts, right? Sure you do. Don't try and lie to me. You're listening to one right now. So why not try a different one called R1, The Flophouse? Uh-huh. And on The Flophouse, we watch a movie and talk about it. And then sometimes we also do other stuff. It's all meant to be funny and fun, and we think you'll have a good time. And just to be clear, the name of the podcast is not Our One, The Flophouse. It's just called The Flophouse. I do a lot of correcting Dan. The Flophouse. A lot of correcting Dan. Helen, the holidays are just around the corner. You know what that means? Like lots of overeating. Yes, or appropriate eating, depending on <laughs> how, how you are with your uh, food issues. But of course, it does mean holiday meals, activities, traditions. And the best tradition, of course, is gathering the family around to have a wonderful meal. And you can have an especially wonderful meal if you get your meat from ButcherBox. Because ButcherBox takes the guesswork out of finding high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. Well, Helen, you know a little bit about ButcherBox, don't you? I I do, I do. ButcherBox offers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. Choose from a variety of box plan options from curated to customized and change your plan whenever you want. You can enjoy a range of high-quality cuts that are hard to come by at the grocery store at an amazing value and, get this, free shipping for the continental United States and no surprise fees. I got a great big box of Butcher Box just a few weeks ago, and I got to tell you, not only was it so easy to store in the freezer and thaw out in the fridge and cook on the stove or in the oven, but it was delicious. You really taste the quality. I made some of the same recipes for meats that I've made for years, and it tasted better with Butcher Box. I especially love their ribeye steaks. I love their chicken tenders. I got a whole rack of ribs. Now, Helen, I know you don't eat some of those things, but guess what? You can customize your butcher box. Helen, what kind of meats do you enjoy that you can get from butcher box? I don't eat animals with four legs, so I right. will not be enjoying the beef or the pork, but I will eat the 
boop out of some chicken and seafood. That's right. There will be no more boop when Helen is around. <laughs> so look, if you want to get some high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door during the holiday season, get yourself some Butcher Box. Helen, how do you get Butcher Box for yourself or as a gift? Yes, J. Keith, the holiday season is made better and tastier with Butcher Box. And for a limited time, they're offering our listeners ground beef for life and 10% off of your first order. That's right. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash go fact and use code GOFACT to get 10% off your first box and ground beef for the life of your membership. That's butcherbox.com slash GOFACT and use code GOFACT to claim this deal. We wish you a happy holidays and we say thank, thank you, you Butcher, butcher Box. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself with our guests, Abby Crutchfield and Mike Petriello. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thanks, Helen. All right, Abby, of your many interests, you told us you know a lot about nail polish, curly hair care, and the TV show Murder, she wrote. Let's find out a little bit more about each of those first. Tell us about nail polish and what it means to you. I painted my nails when I was young with things like whiteout and Sharpies. <laughs> I didn't have actual nail polish. <laughs> But that was a little foreshadowing into the interest. I did a deep dive in 2014, I think because I was waiting for a job. So I had more time to look at blogs. <laughs> and I found out there's a whole community of people who are obsessed with nail polish. There's also nail art of actually making art with it. I'm a visual artist and I my medium of choice is paint. But nail polish is mostly about... I don't know, the, the community. Do you have them on a display somewhere in your home? Like, are they prominently displayed? There's too many to display, so I have... <laughs> how, how many are we talking about, you think? Something around 2,000 to 3,000. Whoa! <laughs> Whoa, that is a lot of nail polish! <laughs> I'm moderate. I'm, I'm keeping it contained, and I refuse to get more containers. All right, Abby, you also said you know a lot about curly hair care. I have a daughter with curly hair, and I love buying products. I love learning about it. And there's another community online... Uh -oh. Curl friends. <laughs> Curl friends. Nice. <laughs> that kind of knows about not just the history of when products came out, although that's kind of the mm -hmm. thing, but more about how different products work on your hair and what tips and tricks to get the best look consistently. When I asked you for your topics originally, you said that uh, not only do you know about curly hair care, but you know the lingo, including a phrase that I was not familiar with called plopping. Uh, would you like to tell <laughs> us what plopping is? Yes. Plopping is when you just come out of the shower, your hair is super saturated or soaked. And instead of drying it with a terry cloth towel, which will lead to frizz and mm -hmm. kind of suck out moisture in certain areas, you want a consistent level of removing the moisture, but maintaining enough moisture so that you can apply a product and, and let it set in. You plop by <laughs> resting your hair in a microfiber towel or a t-shirt, ah. some, some fiber that's gentle, that won't rub, won't cause friction and won't suck out all the moisture. And you do that for a little bit of time until you know your hair is evenly less moist and then you can start styling Whoa. it. Your hair looks a little like uh, tussled. Like I want to, I want to play with your curls. Me? Do you call those curls or are you just, I've got, yeah, I got a just... bit of a, well, I've got a bit of a colic I'm told, uh, I think over on, on this side. <laughs> All right. And then finally, Abby, you said, you know, a lot about the TV show Murder, She Wrote. I watched Murder, She Wrote casually as a child because my mom had it on in her room. I loved murder mysteries and Sherlock Holmes growing up. Uh, and now um, it's the main kind of media I like to consume, especially the British ones. But Murder, She Wrote is special to me because I've finished it. Like during the pandemic, it was like my warm milk before bed. Oh. So I've watched all 12 seasons over five times. Whoa. Like I, I wow. lost count how many I've seen them. And I thought this is going to get weird. 
I'm just going to see these and, and know who did it. And then after <laughs> I know, knew who did it in every episode, I was like, I'm going to keep going. And now I just like pay attention to what props are used in the scene, <laughs> what actors come back. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're from that episode. So there's always a new Easter egg for me to enjoy about watching the same thing over and over again. It's quite maniacal. What kind of props are you noticing in the fifth viewing? Well, one thing is random, but in in one of the seasons, there's a Christmas episode and they're running a toy drive. And there's a poster in the back where the word toy is the same color and graphics as Toy Story. And so it prompted me to make a series back when we had Vine called Murder, She Wrote Prophecies. Oh, my God. So there are these little <laughs> little things about every episode where it's kind of a hint to the future. There was a hint to um, Obama running for president. There's a, a man that says he's going to be the first presidential candidate from Hawaii. And I'm like, this was <laughs> So it was a fun series while it lasted. Yeah, a lot of people do that with The Simpsons, and you found a way to do that with Murder, She Wrote. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I probably <laughs> helped people do that. All right. Well, to summarize, Abby, you said you know a lot about nail polish, curly hair care, and the TV show Murder, She Wrote. Today, we're going to quiz you about Murder, She Wrote. Yay! I'm happy that you're happy. <laughs> of all the episodes that you've seen multiple times, do you have a favorite or a favorite moment from that comes to mind? Okay, one comes to mm-hmm. mind. And and I haven't memorized the episode names, except when I see them, I know immediately what's going to happen in okay. them. But um, there's one where it takes place in a diner because Jessica has taken a bus out of town. She's with Tom Bosley when he's Sheriff Amos Tupper. He comes <laughs> before Mort Metzger. And he's with her, and they play the music for Psycho. They order apple pie. I love any, any part in this show when they order coffee or food. <laughs> I'm just like... I feel like I'm eating it with them, or sometimes I eat while I watch it. <laughs> this is a very visceral experience for you when you watch Murder, She Wrote. This is revealing. No, I this think. is what we're here for, Gabby. A mental illness. I you're, know. Giving, you're giving Murder, She Wrote the Rocky Horror treatment. You're like, you're like <laughs> throwing things at the screen. You've got props. Exactly. You're eating things. I'm, I'm wearing a blonde wig. I'm dressed up as Jessica Fletcher. My goodness. Well, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in your topic to test your mastery with our expert level question worth up to three points. But before that, Abby, to let you show even more of your love, here are five trivia questions about the topic, each worth one point. Now, if you want, you're allowed to hint for any two of these five questions. Now, Mike, do listen closely, because if Abby answers incorrectly, you can steal. Mike, by the way, how much do you know about Murder, She Wrote? I am aware of Murder, She Wrote. I know that actually just a week ago, as we said, <laughs> former guest Jason Betty texted me an Angela Lansbury gift that he thought was funny, and that's kind of the end of the sentence. All right, well, <laughs> Abby, here's question number one. Played by Angela Lansbury, the character of Jessica Fletcher is said to be a combination of a character written by a famous female mystery author and the author herself. The character is Miss Jane Marple, but who is the famous female mystery author? Oh, okay. Who wrote Miss Marple? That would be Agatha Christie. Ellen? That is correct. That is correct. You're on the board with a point. Fun fact, Angela Lansbury played Miss Marple in The Mirror Cracked in 1980 with Elizabeth Taylor, Tony Curtis, and Rock Hudson. Awesome. I can't wait to go look for that. Oh, fun. All right. Here's question number two. Jessica Fletcher usually does her mystery solving in Maine, but she sometimes likes to travel. In one such case, she travels to Hawaii, where she helps solve a mystery alongside another TV detective in a crossover episode with what other hit CBS show? That show is Magnum P.I. The detective is played by Tom Selleck. Helen? That is correct. That is correct for the point. Very nice. Fun fact, that crossover started with a Magnum episode titled Novel Connection and concluded four days later with the Murder, She Wrote episode called Magnum on Ice. 
Question number three, (laughs) you're two for two, Abby. Angela Lansbury was nominated three times for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, but never won. Meantime, four different winners of that award guest starred on Murder, She Wrote. But which of the following Oscar-winning Best Supporting Actresses did not appear on the show? Was it Olympia Mm. Dukakis, Teresa Wright, Claire Trevor, Kim Hunter, or Shirley Jones? Wow. I've never noticed Shirley Jones on there, but she sounds more likely than Olympia Dukakis because I definitely think I would have noticed if Olympia Dukakis was on Mercer at this point. Like, I've seen too many of them. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I sadly don't know the names. Of, like, I don't, can't put a face to the names of the other two actresses. Mm-hmm. So, I, and Kim, I know about. So, I will say Olympia. Helen? That is correct. That is correct for the point. Very wow. well deduced. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Fun fact though, she didn't win a competitive Oscar. Angela Lansbury was given a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2013. She also never won a competitive Emmy Award despite nominations for every season of Murder, She Wrote. She was later given an Emmy Hall of Fame Award in 1996. Good. Well deserved. I would say so. And I think she's got a boatload of Tonys as well. All right, Abby, you're rolling right along. Here's question number four. You do still have your hints available. A show that ran as long as Murder, She Wrote usually generates a number of spinoffs. And in the case of Murder, She Wrote, that number is one. What was the show's lone spinoff called? She had so many mm-hmm. different characters that would be worthy of spinoffs. Like, you just kept seeing them appear in episode after episode. Okay, so I'm going to need a hint for that. All right, one. Helen, how about that first hint? It wasn't the Gra and Harry McLaw. Right. It was <laughs> like that is that is Jerry Orbach's character with Harry McGraw. So let me see. Was it called The Law and Harry McGraw? Ellen? Yes, it was. Yes, that it was. Very nice. <laughs> Dang, I'm good. <laughs> you are good. And fun fact, as you mentioned, Harry McGraw was a popular character on Murder, She Wrote, played by Jerry Orbach. The spinoff series lasted only 17 episodes, after which Orbach went back to guest starring as McGraw on Murder, She Wrote before landing his long running role on Law and Order. All right, Abby, you have a chance to go five for five. You can get this question correct. Murder, She Wrote did very well in the ratings. That is, until CBS moved it from its Sunday night slot to compete on Thursday night against Friends. What was the Mm -hmm. title of the 1996 series finale episode which referenced its doomed ratings? Oh, gosh. A series finale. I know uh, it's got a character named T.T. Vance. <laughs> what is that called? Death in the Radio? Is it called that? Or no, there's a, there's an episode of Death in the Radio, but I don't think that one's it. Okay, I'm needing a Helen, how about that second hint? I was killed by 18 to 49-year-olds with disposable income. Oh. <laughs> hold, hold on, Helen's still acting. Uh, oh, still going. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, I think now she's dead. Helen Hong, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I'm going to, wow, you. that was amazing. I'm going to miss her. I'm going to miss her. I'm going to say TV killed the radio. Helen? Stuff. That is not correct. No, I'm terribly Dang sorry. It. Mike with a chance to steal. It's pretty clear I don't know the answer to this, but since they went against friends, I'm going to say maybe they made a friends joke and it was named The One with the Finale. Oh, very oh, nice guess. That's clever. Helen? That is not correct. No, I'm terribly sorry. Helen, in her magnificent performance, was saying 18 to 49-year-olds with disposable income. That was a reference to Death by Demographics. Demographics! Death by Demographics was a serious finale. Uh, Fun fact, almost 10 years before landing Friends, Courtney Cox appeared in the two-part season three opener, Death Stalks the Big Top. All right, Abby, you still did quite well in that round, but now here's your expert-level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to discuss your response. 
Abby, with the passing this year of Angela Lansbury, who appeared in every episode, Lewis Hertham is the living person with the most appearances on Murder, She Wrote, 25 episodes. Wow. For 23 of those episodes, he recurred as a law enforcement officer in the sheriff's office. But a couple years before that, he played a different law enforcement officer, albeit with the same title. So for up to three points, what law enforcement title did both of these characters have on the show? And what was each of these characters' names? Is he, he's, he was in Westworld, right? That's Lewis Hertham. He's got blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, I can't tell you, but... Um, he's, so Mort Metzger, he worked under Mort, and he, I believe his name was Deputy Andy. Mm, can't think of his last name. Okay. Now, he was in another episode with Elliot Gould as, I don't know, on location mm-hmm. detective. He was either like a lieutenant or something. And he must have been a deputy again, but I have no idea what so his name So what was. are your three answers? Deputy mm-hmm. was the role mm-hmm. he played both times. Um, Deputy Andy mm-hmm. was in the later episodes. And in the one episode where he worked under Elliot Gould as an officer, he was, uh, let's say, Deputy Eric. Deputy oh, Eric. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Helen is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight is an actor whose long career includes multiple roles in 25 episodes of Murder, She Wrote. It's Lewis Hertham. Oh, wow. No way. Hello, no Lewis Hertham. Ah! Hi there. Hi, Abby. Wow. You guys have amazing experts. You blew me away. Aw, thanks. I'm a weirdo. No, <laughs> no you're, you're a true fan. Is a, there are so wow, many. Wow, it's you. Thank you much for joining us, Lewis. You can tell the reaction that uh, Abby had in knowing you. She also recognized you from uh. your work in Westworld. Our listeners will also recognize you from the recurring or regular roles you've had on All Rise, Jag, What If, Longmire, Hacks, True Blood, Westworld, as Abby mentioned, and now as a series regular on Peripheral. What an amazing career that you've had. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed the show so far. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> we'll talk about Murder, She Wrote in just a moment, but let's first talk about some of your other work. Uh, Peripheral, which is now on Amazon Prime Video. You're actually working with some of the same people that you worked with from Westworld. Tell us how that happened. Yes, I'm working with uh, Jonah Nolan, Lisa Joy, who created Westworld and also created The Peripheral. Well, from the book by William Gibson, I was hired to play Peter Abernathy in the pilot of Westworld. And that was really it. And after Peter got put into cold storage, that was, uh, (laughs) I thought, the end of it. Then they were kind enough to continue to bring me back, and I got two seasons out of it. But when my time on Westworld ended, Lisa told me that they had sold a new show and would like to speak with me when the time came to get that thing on the road. You were fantastic in Westworld. I mean, <laughs> chilling. Having heard your like recent work, I understand like you have that classic like Western yeah. gruff <laughs> guy like on horseback with a 10-gallon hat. You have that amazing look and Thank you. And I've yet to play in a real full blo- I mean, you know, Westworld certainly a, a western, but I've yet to be cast in a full-blown western. <laughs> Still waiting. It's coming. I'm crazy. In Westworld, as it's been mentioned, you played Peter Abernathy, this glitching robot. Um, and, and the way that you choose to glitch, it, it's so physical. You you can see it in your face and your body and your voice. Is that as physically tiring as it looked? It really was, because in order to get the kind of movement, you know, those jerky movements, you really have to tense every muscle in your body. So yeah, I was pretty exhausted by the end of the day, but at the same time, I was just God. What an experience that was. All right. Well, let's talk about Murder, Shiro. Tell us about how you got involved in the show and and where were you in your career and your life at that time? 
my first scene was with Harry McGraw, Jerry Arbot, playing pool. He beats me out of 10 bucks. And uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was doing the play, the show off at the group repertory theater and the casting director came to see the play and he called me in and I read for this, this part of Wilbur, got the part. I, would, I was doing some commercials and a little job here and there, but I was hammering nails in 100 degree weather at the time. That's what I was doing for a living. My call time was like 7 a.m. I was just elated to be there, just watching the Jerry Arbuck and Angela and just the whole, I'd been on movie sets before, but this was, you know, this is Murder, She Wrote. So they didn't get to my scene till like 6 p.m., And Anthony Shaw, her son, who was directing the episode, was like profusely apologizing. I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. I'm like, dude, trust me. It's been great. (laughs) Take your time. Beats hammering nails in 100 degree heat. You bet. (laughs) So tell us about playing the role that people got to know you for most from Murder, She Wrote. Okay. So I get a call from my agent. They want you to come back to Murder, She Wrote, and you're going to play a deputy in Cabot Cove. And I'm like, great. Anthony Shaw had requested me. He introduces me to Ron Masak. He says, now, look, Lewis, if this works out, all right, this could be a recurring role because we're getting a new deputy in Cabot Cove. And I'm like, wow. okay, sweet. Bruce Abbott was the guest, one of the guest stars. The line was deputy. Keep an eye on him. And I follow him out like, sure, Sheriff. (laughs) And he goes, well, look, since this might be a recurring role, I'm going to call you by your name. So he looks at my name tag. So he goes, Andy. He goes, I'm going to call you Andy. I told my agents about it. I said, yeah, this this may recur. She called me, I don't know, a couple of weeks later. And she says, well, I guess it didn't work out because there there's a breakdown for Deputy Dave Anderson, a new Cabot Cove deputy. And I went, oh, well. well." Next day she calls and she goes, they want you to play this part. So I go back Mm -hmm. in and they give me this Dave Anderson name tag. And I say, well, I've already been established as Andy. Remember, and they go, oh, that's right. So I became Andy Broom. Yay! But if you look at the credits, it credited me as Deputy Dave Anderson just in that that episode. So, Abby, be grateful we didn't ask you that. (laughs) It was like that on on, uh, IMDb for a while. Uh, It may still be. I don't know. Maybe you're one of those weird deputies that has two first names. Like you're Dave, Andy, Andy, Dave. Andy, Dave. Andy, Dave, get over here. Louis, speaking of the writers, was there ever any talk, even as sort of an inside joke, as to why there were so many murders in this small town (laughs) (laughs) that these deputies had to work on? Don't question. Yeah, because there'd be no show otherwise. Oh, okay. That was the reason. (laughs) (laughs) Last thing I want to ask you about, uh, Angela Lansbury sadly passed uh, not that long ago. What comes to mind when you think of your memories of uh, working with her? Gosh, you know, uh, she had something very few people have, and that is a command of respect. When she was in your presence, I mean, I, I've said this before, it was almost like royalty, like mm. real, like like the queen. I mean, she was mm. so regal and elegant and eloquent, and she treated everybody on the, the set, whether they had one line, whether they were the stand-ins, extras, guest stars, you know, she was so good to her guest stars and people that needed uh, work to get their insurance. She would hire them. And Madeline Rue, for example, she gave her a recurring role because she needed to work. I mean, she just was really a remarkable, remarkable woman. Uh, And, you know, I have great admiration and, and gratitude 
to mm. her and her her family. Wonderful. Wow. Well, it's so wonderful to see that you have such wonderful memories of her. Let's get to the reason we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the question that we asked of Abby. We asked about uh, someone named Lewis Hertham and the 25 episodes of Murder, She Wrote on which he <laughs> appeared. First, you want to know, for those two different law enforcement officer characters, what was the title that they both had? Helen, what did Abby say? Abby said deputy. And Lewis? She is correct. 100%. She is correct for the point. Very Yay! good. Next, we want to know what was each of those characters' names. Helen, what was the first character name that Abby gave? Abby said Deputy Andy. And? Correct. That is correct. Andy Broom. We're going to give you that Yay! point. Very good. And then finally, we wanted to know what was the other name that he played in one episode. Helen, what did Abby say? Abby said Deputy Eric. And Lewis? <laughs> Close. It was actually Deputy Kruger, but his first name was Otto. Elliot just called me Kruger but I was definitely Kruger. <laughs> Kruger! I'm sorry, no point there. Abby, while we have our expert here, is there anything else you'd like to ask or say to him? I am blown away that you took the time to come and listen and <laughs> and play along. And I'm really, really honored. I guess, well, I don't know if this is just a compliment and use it for what you will. But when I saw you in Westworld and I had that facial recognition of this is the man I keep seeing every night. <laughs> that I keep watching the show. And I was like, there's no way because somehow Murder, She Wrote taking place, you know, in the 80s to 90s seems so far away from today. I, I truly thought you were too young to be the same person that I had to look it up on IMDb. Like I was like, there's no way this is the guy. He looks a lot like him, but so anyway, uh, congratulations on finding the fountain of youth, I guess, but also <laughs> on such a storied career because it was from that moment that I looked at the IMDb that I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's so busy. You know, how do you work this long? Like, it just is, all actors love to just figure that out. It's like a code you have to crack. So I was impressed, and, and I'm very, very um, honored that you're Well, on thank the show. you so much. I, that's so flattering, and I appreciate it. Everything you've said, thank you so much. And, and I'm blown away by your expertise uh, in the show. Five times, wow, everything. Thank you. Yeah. It's very validating. Appreciate Lewis, that. It's wonderful that you joined us. If people want to find out more about you and your work, where can they do that? Well, I'm not great on social media, but I am at Lewis underscore Hertham on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, I have a very public Facebook page. And of course, people can watch you on Peripheral on Amazon Prime Video. Please Thank you so do. much for joining us, Lewis Hertham. All right. All right, Helen, what is our score at the end of that round? At the end of that round, Abby Crutchfield has seven points and Mike Petriello has one point with a round of questions for Mike coming up. That's right. We're going to talk with Mike about a topic he knows about. Plus, later, Abby and Mike will go head to head in our Fast Facts round, all to find a winner on Go Fact Yourself. Hey, it's John Moe inviting you to listen to Depression Mode with John Moe where I talk about mental health and the lives we live with all kinds of people. Famous writers. David Sedaris, welcome to Depression Mode. Thanks so much for having me. Movie stars. Jamie Lee Curtis, welcome to Depression Mode. I am happy to be here. Musicians. I am in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm talking to Amy Mann. Great to talk to you. And song exploders. Rishikesh Hirway, welcome to Depression Mode. Thanks so much for having me. Everyone's opening up on Depression Mode on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself with our guests, Abby Crutchfield and Mike Petriello. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you, Helen. All right, Mike, of your many interests, you told us you know a lot about James Bond movies, the best rock records of 1996, and dead sports teams. Let's find out a little bit more about each of those. First, tell us what James Bond movies means to you. 
you know, James Bond movies were really kind of a lifesaver to me and it's sort of a dark spot. So like, listen, I grew up in the 90s. I watched the Pierce Brosnan movies. I watched the Daniel Craig movies and they were all very good. And then at the end of uh, 2020, the baseball season's coming to an end and it was a shortened season. The winter was beyond uncertain. The kids were like half in school and fall sports weren't really starting up. And it's like, what am I going to do over this dark winter to make sure that I don't lose my mind? And then as it turned out, like a couple of days after the season ended, Sean Connery passed away. And I'm like, well, now seems like a good time. I should go watch some of those classic Bond movies. And then I thought to myself, you know, there's like 25 of these things. I should go watch all of the Bond movies. And that's what I did. I spent that entire winter doing that. And because I'm me and because this is what I do for work, I have a spreadsheet of it with uh, <laughs> notes and it's color coded by actor. Are there advanced metrics in uh, James wow. Bond movies? Is there... And just by doing that, I know a lot about all these movies now. All right. You also said you know a lot about the best rock records of 1996. Uh, yes. You'll be unsurprised to know that in 1996, I was 14 turning 15, which I think is everybody's like favorite era for music. I have, I don't know, uh, 15 of my all time favorite records came out that year. And some of them were brand new bands, you know, like Fountains of Wayne came out that year. Mm-hmm. Super Dre came out that year. Some of them were you know, third or fourth records from bands I already loved. You know, Bad Religion is an example. Even the the soundtrack from That Thing You Do, which is like mm-hmm. an all-time great song. So I have a bass hanging here. I've been playing in bands for years. And I, I realized recently that, you know, when I think about my favorite songs to play in the bass, I'm like, oh, yeah, a lot of these came out in 1996. And then I think about how many years ago 1996 was. <laughs> no, then I get a that. little don't, sad. Don't do that. No, no, no. We're all we're all very, very young. Uh, <laughs> well, let's keep things happy by talking about your last topic, dead sports teams. That sounds a little darker than I think I yeah. meant it to me. Let's go with defunct sports teams. You know, teams that played somewhere and don't anymore. They moved or they folded or whatever. So, for example, the Hartford Whalers would be a great example. The St. Louis Browns. I actually like fascinated by the histories of these teams in these places that are just gone. And like, what do people do with those memories? I, the St. Louis Browns are now the Baltimore Orioles. But I remember I did a whole research project on they were going to move to Los Angeles in 1941 and they had everything set up and they were going to beat the Dodgers and then Pearl Harbor happened the day the vote was supposed to happen and then they never did it I kind of collect a lot of the memorabilia from some of these teams and I was thinking that you know all the people who have ever lived on this planet there's like 10 billion or whatever there's nothing I can do that no one's ever done before and then I realized I was wearing a St. Louis Brown shirt and a Hartford Whalers hat and I thought oh maybe I am the first person ever to do this Well, to summarize, Mike, you said you know a lot about James Bond movies, the best rock records of 1996, and dead or defunct sports teams. Today, we're going to quiz you about the best rock records of 1996. Yes. yes. And Mike is ready to rock. Uh, you mentioned some of your faces. It's interesting. You, you actually like a lot of different genres, like not just sort of traditional rock and pop, it sounds like. Uh, punk rock, for sure. And I realize um, even that's limiting. Like, obviously, I know 1996 was a huge year for rap and hip hop and all this other stuff, but that yeah. wasn't necessarily my scene. So, yeah, the, the, the grunge rock... Uh, you know, the pop punk, power pop, all that kind of stuff that kind of coalesced at that time in space. I feel like there's something about the way your brain works, like the, the statistician part of your brain that is like crystallized, like this one year, this exact age. Like it's, it's it says a lot about you, your personality. It's very interesting. I, I think that's 100 percent correct. That was also kind of <laughs> that was also kind of a great era for what's affectionately known as like nerd rock, you know, like Weezer <laughs> and Nerf Herder and stuff like that. Yeah. Definitely into that. All right. Well, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in your topic to test your mastery with an expert-level question worth up to three points. But before that, to let you show your love, here are five trivia questions about your topic, each worth one point. If you want it, you're allowed to hint for any two of these five questions. Now, Abby, do listen closely because if Mike answers incorrectly, you can steal. Abby, by the way, how much do you know about the best rock records of 1996? 
So I'm, I'm a big trivia person. I feel like I'm going to get some of this stuff from, from visually watching MTV a lot okay. or listening to it in the radio. But I don't know specifics. specifics. All, all so you we'll know see. about 1996 is that's when Murder, She Wrote ended. <laughs> We've got a little crossover. <laughs> it's a very dark yes, time Yes, yes. I'm sorry to bring no, that up I again. I didn't get into Murder, She Wrote until okay. later. So, uh, yeah. This is, my, this is my jam. All right. Mike, here's question number one. While the debut Foo Fighters album was released in 1995, the band's breakthrough came in 1996 with the release of their song, Big Me. The award-winning video for the song is a parody of commercials for a chewy candy mint from the Netherlands using the slogan, The Fresh Maker. What is the name of this candy? That is absolutely Mentos. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. You're on the board with a point there. Fun fact, though the song's video features all four original members of Foo Fighters' touring lineup, all the instruments and vocals on the band's debut album were performed by Dave Grohl. All right, here's question number two. I have a feeling you might know this one. One of the most prolific rock musicians of the 1990s, Adam Schlesinger, had a very busy 1996. In addition to the release of the debut album by his group Fountains of Wayne, one of your favorites you happen to mention, which he also produced, and touring with his trio Ivy, Adam wrote a song that beat out over 300 other submissions to be included in a major motion picture about a rock band, a song that received Oscar and Golden Globe nominations. What was the name of that song or 1996 film? Well, the film was called That Thing You Do, the band was called variously the wonders or the oneaters depending at what point in the film you come into it helen that is correct that is correct a big wow right there right to, i believe that is what they call a fastball down broadway for you <laughs> fun fact according to people magazine among the other bands who submitted songs for consideration for that thing you do's theme were gin blossoms and they might be giants the successful submission by adam schlesinger has been covered by multiple artists including the knack and sync and pentatonics Wow. All and right, me, and me, and, and you. <laughs> I'm sorry that People Magazine did not point that one out, but we will no. add it to the record. All right, Mike, you're two for two. Here's question number three. Some of 1995's best albums produced big hits in 1996, and some of 1996's best albums continued to produce huge sales in 1997 and beyond. Whatever year they sold the most, which of the following seminal albums was the only one actually released in 1996? Was it OK Computer by Radiohead, Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt, What's the Story Morning Glory by Oasis, Sheryl Crow by Sheryl Crow, or Weezer, the Blue Album by Weezer? That is a great question. The Blue Album came out in 1994. Okay. I think I, the, one I, the one I don't know about is the one I'm going to guess, because I'm, I'm sure the other ones didn't, and I'm not okay. 100% sure about Sheryl Crow, so I'm going to say it's going to be Sheryl Crow. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. Very well deduced. Process of elimination. That was going to be my guess, too. (laughs) Fun fact, in order of release, it was Weezer's Blue Album in 1994, Oasis's What's the Story, Morning Glory, and Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt, both within the same couple weeks in 1995, and OK Computer by Radiohead in 1997. Here's question number four. You still have your hints available. Mike, speaking of Weezer, their big hit album of 1996 was Pinkerton, but that release was threatened when a day before the album's scheduled drop, Pinkerton's security company sued on the grounds of trademark infringement. Songwriter and frontman Rivers Cuomo submitted a six-page letter explaining that the work was inspired instead by an opera, and the case was dismissed. What opera inspired Pinkerton? The final song on the record is like an acoustic song called Butterfly, and I believe it's Madame Butterfly. Ellen? 
That is correct. Very nice wow. job. Wow. Cool. Fun fact, Pinkerton is the surname of the lieutenant in the opera Madama Butterfly and also of the infamous Civil War spy who, in 1850, co-founded Pinkerton Security, which, despite its frivolous lawsuits, still exists to this day. <laughs> All right, Mike, you have a chance to go five for five. Here is your last question. You do still have your hint available. The list of best-selling rock records of 1996 seemed to be dominated by straight white males, but some top artists were none of these. For instance, Tracy Chapman's song, Give Me One Reason, was a top 10 hit in 1996 and won the Grammy for Best Rock Song. In that song, how many times does Tracy Chapman sing the exact phrase, Give Me One Reason? <laughs> We're gonna go for that hint what? like right away. <laughs> not, not, that's not in the. That's not in the spreadsheet. No, it's not. The no. Okay. <laughs> Helen, please enjoy giving this hint. <laughs> this hint is tailored for you, Mike. It's the same number as the baseball reference WAR accumulated in 2022 by Sandy Alcantara. Wow. Okay, that is an amazing hint. By the way. Thank Eight. you. And Helen, Helen knows exactly what that means. Don't yeah. you, I, have, I literally said a bunch of words and I blinked through them because I didn't understand a word of what it I just said. It was perfectly stated and it made a great deal of sense to me. And all I have to do is remember what that is. Uh, nine. Helen, is it nine? It is not nine. No, I'm terribly sorry. Abby with oh. a chance to steal. I'm sh- I have a chance to steal. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know Sandy Alcantara's baseball <laughs> reference war. And I'm I'm going to throw that clue right out the window okay. and just sing the song in my okay. head. <laughs> Without actually singing it, I'll just say 12 or I want to say it's like an odd number because it like fades mm-hmm. out at the end. But let's just say 12. 12. Helen, is it 12? It is not 12. Is it 27? We didn't ask what Aaron Judge's <laughs> war was, right, Mike? <laughs> oh, <laughs> quite. Got it. Yeah. For our listeners who don't know what the hell we're talking about, war is a statistic that stands for wins above replacement, is an advanced metric in uh, baseball stats. Baseball Reference is one of the publications that uh, publishes war, Fangraphs being the other more popular one. Uh, the answer that we were looking for is eight. She says it eight uh, times, and that was Sandy Alcantara's. You were so, so close. close. <laughs> yes, you were close. Um, sorry, no point there. But fun fact, other Grammys in rock categories that year went to Beck, Cheryl Crow, Dave Matthews Band, Rage Against the Machine, and The Smashing Pump. That's great. All right, Mike, you still did quite well in that round, but now here is your expert level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to discuss your response. Mike, 1996 was a notable year for two rock bands on the West Coast. One, a punk band from Los Angeles, released its ninth full-length album. The other, from Seattle, released its follow-up album to its smash 1995 debut. Now, both of these albums were top 100 hits on the Billboard charts in 1996, and both of the lead vocalists have interests you might not expect from rock singers. One has since had a successful career as a children's musician. The other is an evolutionary biologist. For up to three points, name these two albums and name either one of these lead vocalists. I'm going to name both of the lead vocalists because I know exactly who you're talking about. The Seattle band who had the (laughs) follow-up, the record was just simply called Two. Uh, that would be the presidents of the United States of America, and that's Chris Ballou, who has mm-hmm. yes, uh, Casper Baby Pants, I believe, is the uh, children's <laughs> band he does now. Oh my gosh, my daughter! Yeah, it's it's quite good. And then um, the Los Angeles-based punk rock band that's going to be Bad Religion, and that is going to be uh, the record they put out that year was The Gray Race, and the lead singer is Greg Graffin, who I 
I can't remember if it's Cornell, but I think it's somewhere in upstate New York is where he ends up teaching. All right. Well, Helen is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. In fact, we have two. Helen, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight are two lead vocalists from bands who had hit albums in 1996. From the Presidents of the United States of America, it's Chris Ballou. (laughs) And from Bad Religion, it's Greg Graffin. What? What? I think I'm going to pass out. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Chris and Greg. Hello. Welcome, both of you. I don't know if this was in tribute to Mike Patriello. Both of you are wearing old school baseball caps. (laughs) You are. (laughs) Well, I thought, yeah, I mean, I don't know about Chris, but, you know, I thought we had a next gen statistician on this show. And, Mike, I think you guys got to figure out the next gen stats for epic meltdowns after crucial (laughs) trades and the the psychological effects of those trades on the team itself. No, the Josh Hader trade worked out perfectly. No complaints. Yeah, Yeah, that is a reference to the Brewers hat that uh, (laughs) that Greg is wearing. And then Chris, uh, what do you got rocking there? I'm rocking the old school Mariners uh, logo, which I have no, well, I know why they changed it to sell more merch, but... Look at this thing. It is perfect. They're both gorgeous um, classic and, logos. I'm not wearing this just because of you, Mike. I wear this every single day. So this is just another day for me with my old school. Chris, Mariners I was in out. Toronto for the nice. wildcard series this year. I was on the field when the Mariners had that comeback against the Blue Jays, and it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. I was watching in L.A. with a friend, and it was fantastic. Well, speaking yeah, of cool, cool. Uh, just to uh, give some context for our listeners, Greg from Brad Religion is a band that sold millions of albums, including Top 40 albums, True North, The Descent of Man, New Maps of Hell, and The Empire Strikes First. And Greg has a doctorate in zoology, which we'll talk about. Chris from the Presidents Ooh. of the United States of America sold millions of albums, have had hit singles with Lump, Peaches, and Kitty. And Chris, as a children's music artist, Casper Baby Pants, uh, secured a Grammy nomination for your work. So congratulations to both of you, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Greg, I had asked before if uh, you two had met, because though you traveled in similar circles at the same time, you weren't sure, but you thought you maybe had played on some of the same shows? We've been on tour at the same time and played all the same festivals, but uh, as you know, Chris will probably tell you, you don't usually get to uh, see each other because you're scrambling to different stages and different times. Greg, you formed Bad Religion when you were in high school, and you are still out there rocking hard. I watched a YouTube video that you guys just did this year. How have you managed to keep your voice up for, for so long? Well, that's very kind of you to say, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's, um, yeah, I never really uh, was hooked on drugs, and I never drank a lot, and uh, the voice is just something that if you take care of the body, mm-hmm the voice will really maintain itself. I have uh, advisors and uh, people who tell me um, I'm supposed to continue doing this till I'm in my 70s, but I can't imagine that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would not be surprised if you, if, you, if you wanted to do that, if you were able to. It's just amazing. The first line of your bio in Wikipedia says, is an American singer and evolutionary biologist, which is not a, not a combination that you come across a lot. How did you get into evolutionary biology? It's funny you should ask, because I just wrote this uh, memoir called Punk Paradox, where I describe a lot of things about what you see in front of you or what you what we're talking about today. I grew up a kid in the Midwest, uh, in Milwaukee. The Brewers, you know, followed me through my life. Half of the book is about that transition from the Midwest to Los Angeles mm. at a crucial time in junior high school. 
I was really, really interested in evolution, but there wasn't really any place in Los Angeles. You know, the schools didn't actually teach evolution, believe it or not. Wow. This was 1976 through 1980. And I did a special like uh, book report on Charles Darwin in my junior high school class. I got an A in biology. I really think I, I, I was, um, you know, I excelled at it because it was a peripheral subject. But now, of course, as I went on and, and taught it uh, later in life, it's a crucial subject, uh, absolutely a core part of any modern education. I'm going to ask you a little bit about your book, which is called Punk Paradox in a moment. But Chris, it's interesting because you actually compared being a children's entertainer to punk rock. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's nothing more punk rock than a room full of kids in diapers running around. I mean, they just don't care about the rules around a show. They they will come up to me and say, you know, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. I'm right in the middle of a song, and they're just saying, excuse me, excuse me. And some of statements I get when I pause the show to see what they need, mm -hmm. if they're persistent enough, some of them are like, my coat is red. <laughs> <laughs> I have an 18 month old right now, thankfully not in this house at the moment, but like literally right. one time I took a video of him eating while pooping his pants <laughs> while making direct <laughs> eye contact with me. And I was like, that is pretty punk rock right there. I, I don't even think Marilyn Manson can get up to that level. <laughs> the topic of our quiz, of course, is uh, the year of 1996. You both were at different places in your careers. And what comes to mind when you think about the year 1996, Greg? Well, it's funny you talked about Weezer. You know, Rick Ocasek produced Weezer. Weezer was uh, just tearing, literally tearing down their drum set at Electric Lady Studios in New York while we were moving in to record our album with Rick Ocasek. So The Grey cool. Race was recorded in New York City with Rick Ocasek. And of course, we knew Weezer from, you know, just casually, probably like me and Chris know each other, but it wasn't like a big shock that they were just wrapping up. What was a shock is that Rick didn't even leave one day of loadout. <laughs> we were, <laughs> slated, to, we were late, slated to start on that day when they still had their equipment in the studio. Well, that's funny because we made our record at Bad Animals in Seattle and Soundgarden was in the studio making, uh, I believe, Down on the Upside as we were making our record. So we were crossing paths with Soundgarden constantly in the hallways and stuff. And uh, Kim, again, I, Kim Thiel from Soundgarden was an early champion of the presidents. He actually plays uh, lead guitar on a song on our debut record. Mm. So he was kind of like the, the guy that went to, I feel like he went to the community and said, no, no, this band is good. <laughs> They're not just a joke. Pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, it was really great to have them around while we were making our record. Uh, so that was a, a, a fun memory. And you both are onto some new projects. Uh, Greg, we talked about the book called Punk Paradox. Uh, it's a memoir, but also sort of a, a history and a criticism of punk. Um, what do you see as sort of the status of punk music today? When a literary discussion is talking about a criticism, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean I'm criticizing Absolutely. the genre. A, a cultural critic might. Yeah. yeah. Yeah it's, yeah, it's more of an observation of some of the paradoxical elements of yeah. the genre, you know, and, and um, I've been in it for 40 years now. I don't really feel like I ever fit the stereotype, you know, what was publicized as the most um, important elements of punk. Right. You know, it, and so my, my memoir is partly a search for what those elements are. And uh, I think... 
you know, in one part of the book, I write about how rebellion is at the core of punk rock. But there's a there's two types of rebellion. You know, there's take to the streets, but there's also the rebellion of the mind, the way you think. And in that kind of rebellion, I think is the really lasting element. And it's a place where I find comfort in the punk genre. And Chris, you've recently retired uh, Casper Baby Pants after 19 albums. I think you I think you earned that retirement. Uh, <laughs> but obviously you had a big influence. Abby uh, even mentioned that uh, she was a fan of it. Every night my daughter goes to sleep to Sleep Tight and Good Night on a loop. So oh, she, wow. she gets that yeah. from me. Let's do the same thing over and over again. <laughs> oh, that's, that's really nice to hear because I made two lullaby records, Night Night and Sleep Tight. I found as I wrote this music for little kids, I really tried to write it with the parents in mind. In fact, I always say I actually was the very first uh, parents uh, musician. You know, there's no genre called parents yeah. music, but if there was, sign well, me Chris, up. Well, Chris, tell us about what you're doing now, because what you're doing now is something for the grownups again. During the pandemic, I took the opportunity to stop. I did put out three Casper records during the pandemic, but they were all finished before the pandemic started, so I metered them out. So I dismantled my studio, and I kind of took advantage of the stillness to be still. And for about nine months, I played music every day, but I did not do it with a goal or a... Uh, I wasn't doing it toward an end. I would just play to play. Out of that stillness and that kind of presence came this new kind of idea for music. It's very fuzzy and repetitive, kind of mm -hmm. calling upon like psych rock kind of stuff. But it's, I try to make the lyrics, well, the lyrics are about just being alive and existing and my experience of having a body and walking around. <laughs> I got really into Ram Dass during the... Okay. Uh, during wow. the uh, pandemic, yeah. Very cool. Well, let's get to the reason we brought both of you here today as far as our game is concerned. You heard the question that we asked of Mike. We wanted to know what were those two albums that we described that were big in 1996 for those two rock bands on the West Coast. Helen, what was the first album that Mike gave us? Mike said two by the Presidents of the United States of America. And Chris? Ooh. Yeah, that is correct. Ooh. Very good. That is a point for Mike. What was the second album that Mike said, Helen? Mike said, The Gray Race by Bad Religion. And Greg? You can go fact check that yourself, but I'll say yes, he's absolutely correct. <laughs> Another point for Mike. Finally wanted to know if he could name either one of these lead vocalists. He actually gave both of them. Helen, what were the answers that Mike said? Mike said, Chris Ballou and Greg Graffin. And Chris and Greg, how did he do? Correct. <laughs> you are a veritable expert on 1996, I gotta say. Very good. Mike, while we have Chris and Greg here, anything you'd like to ask or say? Chris, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, at yeah. the time, like grunge was a little dour and this, some of the other stuff was coming out, like corn and all this kind of stuff. And you guys just had the most fun. I think that's what I appreciated the most about your band. I appreciate that. We, I remember distinctly watching the MTV Video Music Awards in 1993, I think, or two or three. And there was a lot of, yeah, the heavy music was uh, raining the day or whatever. And I remember I was living with my parents. I had no money. I had no nothing. And I'm watching TV in their house. And it really came to me clearly like, we need to get the party back in swing mm. here. <laughs> yeah. So I appreciate and Mike, that. Mike, anything you'd like to ask or say to Greg? Yeah, Greg, absolutely. I mean, I know you guys have been doing this for a, a long time, and there's a lot of bands, I think, who have been around for that long that seem to lose steam, and you guys never have. And I imagine a lot of that is just about there's no shortage of things to be angry about, right? Like you have a song <laughs> like The Kids Are All Right, and, you know, a lot kind of going in that direction. And um, I just I just appreciate that after all of these years, like every new record that comes out, I'm like, oh, this is still great. I'm not over this. Like, I still love this. Well, thanks a lot. I mean, the, I appreciate the uh, analysis. I, I don't 
just so you know, I don't feel angry when I write these things. Um, you know, and I, I know I speak for my co-writer, Brett, too, because when we write music, we have the great time and it's fun, but there's never an end. If you can identify the things that are really eternal puzzles in our society, they never go away. And so if you can identify those and write about them creatively, they'll always be relevant. And that's what we've always tried to do. So it's not reactionary. It's actually an ongoing analysis of who we are and kind of a search for meaning. So in that sense, bad religion is a good religion for us, I guess. Well said. <laughs> awesome. It's so wonderful to talk with you both. Chris, if people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, where can they do that? chrisbalu.org is a good place to start. C-H-R-I-S-B-A-L-L-E-W.org. Awesome. And Greg Graffin, you've got that wonderful book called Punk Paradox that people can find everywhere. And where else can people find you? You know, just uh, Bad Religion Socials. Um, bad Religions on uh, Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. Awesome. It was Have so amazing time. to welcome both of you. Thank you so much for being here, Chris Ballou and Greg Graffin. Thanks a lot. All right, Helen, what is our score at the end of that round? At the end of that round, Abby Crutchfield has seven points and Mike Petriello has eight points. All right. right. Oh, man. Now it is time for a final round we call Fast Facts. I'll read 10 statements and each contestant will answer with true or false. I'll start with Abby and alternate between each guest. Each correct answer is worth one point. Again, the answer to each statement is true or false. Here we begin. Abby, there's a board game called Clue. True. Correct. Mike, Clue has versions in different languages. True. Correct. Abby, in the Brazilian version, Colonel Mustard is called Coronel Mostarda. False. Incorrect. No, and I practiced that all week. Mike, (laughs) thank you. In the Canadian version, Colonel Mustard is called Captain Mustard. God, I hope so. True. (laughs) Incorrect. No, he's still a colonel. Abby, there's a version of Clue based on the TV show Seinfeld. True. Correct. Mike, there's a version of Clue based on the TV show Firefly. False? Incorrect. No, there really is. <laughs> Abby, there's a version of Clue based on the TV show The Golden Girls. Ooh, there should be. Uh, true. I have two Golden Girls board games, and neither of them are that, but true. Correct. I got to add that to your collection. Mike, in The Golden Girls Clue, players must solve a murder. True. Incorrect. Abby, in The Golden Girls Clue, players must solve a robbery. Oh, it's about cheesecake, right? Uh, true. Incorrect. Mike, in the Golden Girls Clue, players must solve who ate the last piece of cheesecake. <laughs> True. Correct. Not a robbery. But that is a robbery, well, you guys. We'll, that is a robbery. We will discuss that in uh, in our next episode, perhaps. I need that point. All right, fine. Fair enough. Abby, the Golden Girls Clue is recommended for ages 80 and up. <laughs> False. Correct. Mike, the Golden Girls Clue is recommended for ages eight and up. True. Correct. And finally, Abby, any eight-year-old who wants to play Golden Girls Clue is my kind of kid. True. We're not going to count those last few. I'm going to let Helen tabulate the final scores. We thank Mike and Abby for joining us. Helen, are you ready to announce the final score? Jay Keith, it is a hot, hot tie game. A tie game. Both Abby Crutchfield and Mike Petriello currently have 10 points. All right. Well, we can't let our game end in a tie like in Major League Baseball. No, (laughs) just like in Major League Baseball. So let's go to our tie breaker. Here's how the tie breaker works. I will ask you a question. The answer is a number. Whoever gets closer to the correct number wins. Now, we do not play Price is Right style. So no guessing $1. I'm going to ask you the question, think about it, and then I'll ask you to blurt out your answers at the same time on the count of three. So don't answer right away. (laughs) All right, here we go. How many calories are in a McDonald's Egg McMuffin? 
How many calories in a McDonald's Egg McMuffin? All right, on the count of three. One, two, three. A thousand. 460. Uh, Mike said a thousand. Abby said 460. The correct answer, 310. That means, Abby, congratulations. You are the facting <laughs> champ on Go Fact Yourself. Abby, what will you do with your championship? Wow, this is amazing. I'm just going to brag about it on uh, Mastodon as well as Twitter now. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever's left of it by right. the time we, uh, we're finished. That just leaves us the opportunity for anyone here to promote anything they might like to do. Abby Crutchfield, where can people find out what you're up to? You can listen for me on the Kid is in School podcast that I host with Luke there. We release a new episode every Tuesday, and you can find me performing live by going to curlycomedy.com and find out where I'm performing. Often in New York, but sometimes I travel as Awesome. Well. well, thanks so much for joining us, Abby Crutchfield. Mike Petriello, where can people find your work and what you're up to? You can find me at Greenwood Cemetery, where I will be deceased because I got to talk to Chris Blue and Greg Gafford, which was extremely <laughs> cool. Wow. Uh, you, I write at MOB.com. I contribute to ESPN on TV, and I will be on Twitter until the day it explodes no matter what happens i'm going down with the ship mike underscore petriello excellent well thank you so much for joining our ship as we continue to float i have no idea where this metaphor is going but thank you so much for being here mike petriello thank you ladies and gentlemen my hosting partner is helen hong helen where can people find you I have a uh, comedy special streaming right now on various streaming platforms. It is called Well Hong because I have the maturity (laughs) of an eighth grader. And you can also follow me on socials that are imploding or not at funny Helen Hong because that other woman named Helen Hong, she's not funny. Not funny. funny. Not funny. But this one is. She is funny. She is Helen. She is funny. Helen Hong. Uh, And me. You can find me on Twitter for now at J underscore Keith on Instagram at jkeith. .net all spelled out. That just leaves me to thank Abby Crutchfield, Mike Petriello, Lewis Hertham, Chris Ballou, and Dr. Greg Graffin. And thank you for listening and supporting our show at MaximumFun.org. I'm J. Keith Van Stratton. Good night. Like what you hear? Come see us live. It's happening again. Go to GoFactorPod.com for our schedule and tickets. Meanwhile, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, all at GoFactorPod, update our wiki at GoFactorWiki.Fandom.com, and buy our T-shaped shirt at MaxFunStore.com. Also, we've got new merch coming. Ooh. Ooh. And give us a great review on your favorite podcast platform, like J.P. Huckins did on Apple Podcasts. He, she, or they said, my favorite podcast. I think I've been listening to this podcast from the first episode. I don't remember ever being disappointed. Thanks, J.P. Huckins. Hopefully you still aren't. Helen? Go Fact Yourself is a panel quiz program devised and produced by Jim Newman and J. Keith Van Stratton. Comes to you via transcription from various homes across the country. Questions were compiled by the Trivia Industrial Complex, including Clint Tauscher. We are produced in collaboration with Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun's senior producer is Laura Swisher, associate producer and editor and possibly Spider-Man, maybe Batman. Today's show engineer is Julian Burrell. Our theme song and incidental music were written and performed by Jonathan Green. Research assistance provided by Adam Needif. Quiz assistance provided by Bart Gold and Brian Phillips. Promotional graphics by Erich Tran. Added support from Dave Bianchi and Christine Vallada. Special thanks to Lynn Holly Johnson and Kelly Givens at Savills US. Elizabeth Much at East to West Collective. Michael Gerantano at Hachette Book Group. Arpi Katengian at Amazon Studios, Scott Ray at Signing Convention Experiences, Christina White at Mutiny PR, Jason Benetti, and Greg Wyshynski. I've been Helen Hong! Let's go listen to music and watch TV shows from 1996. Yeah, I wasn't alive then. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.